God. As we remember from last week, uh, today's passage obviously follows that. But last week, we, Darren shared with us how Jesus talked to his disciples and told them what was going to happen, how they would be going to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, things would appear to break down. I mean, he would be turned over to the Jewish rulers. They would turn him over to the Romans. He'd be scourged and beaten, crucified. Everything would seem to fall apart. But the point was they really weren't falling apart. He was telling them it was all part of God's plan of redemption. And that on the third day he would rise again. And then what I call a non sequitur. You'd think somebody would say, great, or that sounds terrible or something. But the only thing we hear is that James and John decide to ask Jesus, would you give us whatever we ask you? And that leads to them being, they ask for privilege and prestige in the kingdom. And then the other disciples hear that, and they get into indignation and pettiness. But Jesus' long and circuitous trip to Jerusalem is coming toward an end. Jericho is 18 miles from Jerusalem, and he was leaving Jericho. He was leaving the last stop on his way to his crucifixion, to his passion, and he knew it. He must have been sensing that the climax of his ministry was at hand, that there was going to be incredible suffering and pain just around the corner. He knew he had to suffer and die for all mankind, but he had no sympathy or support from his disciples in this most important time. He was talking about his death, and they were talking about who's going to be more important. He was talking about his suffering, and they were having some squabble about the pecking order in his kingdom. They were more concerned about their rank in his kingdom than about his death. He was trying to prepare them for his crucifixion, and they were only concerned about who's number one. How unlike we are, they are, they were, we who are less concerned about our petty issues and more concerned about the kingdom and who's going to be saved. Oh, I wish that were true. Let's pray. We'll be praying some words from Psalm 25, the psalm of the day today from the book we've been reading. Make me to know your, path, your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Lord, this is our prayer. That we would know your ways. That we would see your paths and follow them. Oh, may you lead us in the truth. Your word is truth today. Your word is truth always. So teach us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. For we confess that you are the God of our salvation. And Lord, for you we wait all the day long. Lord, may the words of our, my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. O oh Lord, our Redeemer, amen. And they, 
came to Jericho, and they were leaving Jericho. We don't really know what happened in Jericho. It must not have been terribly important, or at least not as important as what comes next. You know, they were leaving. There's a crowd about Jesus and the disciples. There was some hubbub. Uh, <clears throat> but if you go through what uh, was just read by Stephen, you go to the very next verse in chapter 11, you see Jesus is in Jerusalem for Palm Sunday. And less than a week later, he would be crucified. The next stop was Jerusalem. Last week, Darren showed us Jesus' focus was on his appending passion and the end of his ministry. Let's review the verses in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark 10, uh, verses 33 and 34. I think Chase has got that for us here. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles. <laughs> And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus knew the heat was rising. The flames were getting warmer. He'd soon be in Jerusalem, the locus of all his enemies. The climax of his mission was right at hand. The next stop. But it wasn't the next stop. Unexpectedly, at least to everybody else, a destitute beggar, probably invisible to the crowd up at this point, interrupts everything and begins shouting. Where'd this guy come from? Who is he? What's he doing here? Will he just please shut up? It was this, it was this environment that the exchange with Barnabas and the crowd, and Barnabas and Jesus occurred. I just want to walk through this passage to see at least four points. One, Jesus is never too busy or preoccupied to be interrupted. That should encourage us to humbly seek his help and pray. Secondly, we see that Jesus will respond to the cries of his people. That should motivate us to boldly cry out like Bartimaeus. Without needs, without reservation or embarrassment or fear of our reputation. Thirdly, it's clear that Jesus does care. He does heal. He does give health and salvation. That in itself should grow our faith. And lastly, hopefully we'll see that faith in Jesus and gratitude for what he's done naturally leads us to follow him. And that impacts our world and brings glory to God. Yes, Jesus was leaving Jericho, moving toward Jerusalem in his passion and death. He was surrounded by this crowd, but in a real sense, he was very much alone, for no one really understood what was going to happen so soon. No one understood the gravity of the coming days, save him, even though he had shared it with his disciples at least three times. How hard it is for us to hear what we don't want to hear, what doesn't fit into our plans, which doesn't fit our assumptions. If you ask my wife, Sush, how often I don't hear because I'm preoccupied, or I don't hear because I thought I knew what she was going to tell me, and she told me that, but she didn't really tell me that. Well, the crowds of the disciples didn't understand the upcoming crisis, and they didn't like the thought of pain and suffering. It seems they enjoyed most being with Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, the great miracle worker, the great teacher, 
the popular rabbi. None wanted to hear about suffering of their popular rabbi. Death and suffering were out of the equation for them, and I submit it's generally that way for us too. No one seems to want to hear about that, let alone embrace pain and woe. They were enjoying their time together with Jesus. And all of a sudden, Bartimaeus burst on the scene. Bartimaeus. What does that mean? Bar, the son of Timaeus. What does Timaeus mean? It means honored one, prized one, special one. But to this crowd, Bartimaeus was not a prized one. He was an annoyance, a social misfit who didn't deserve any action, any attention, let alone attention from Jesus. And for most of them, in their understanding, <clears throat> blindness was a judgment from God on him or his family or somebody, and he's getting his just desserts. God was exacting judgment on him. At best, he was an untimely distraction, an awkward interruption to Jesus' travel plans. And yet here we see Jesus unperturbed, even as he's preparing for his death and suffering. Jesus didn't seem to be offended, frustrated, or disturbed by this interruption. Personally, I don't do well with interruptions. In my working life at NASA, I always found myself much more productive at work before everybody got there, before my bosses got there, because I could work on my agenda, not their agenda. I enjoyed that much more. I was more productive. You know, but truth be told, I haven't changed much since I started being retired at home. Um, I don't like to be interrupted now. Just last week, I was digging this trench for a gutter uh, downspout and getting water away from a house. And it was an eight-inch, eight-inch deep and about four, six inches wide gutter and went for a long distance. I was digging for quite a while. So I'd gotten it finished. I was putting the pipe in, and along comes the city. Well, I thought I was okay because I'd talked to the city. I'd even talked to the city engineer about this, so I wouldn't interrupt anybody. He comes and tells me I've got to stop. Or he says, I recommend you stop. I don't want you to do more work all over again. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I got a call from one of your neighbors. I, God bless her or him, who was concerned my eight-inch hole, my eight-inch ditch might be breaking the gas line. I thought, oh my goodness, how could this possibly? Eight inches? Well, I stopped, and he promised that the engineer would come out soon. The next day I was calling. Finally got a hold of the engineer about a day later, and he said, yeah, you're good. You're good. Go ahead and finish. So I went ahead and finished, but I lost a day of work. Interruption, interruptions distract, delay, and change our plans. And I often resent that. Can I just get done what I planned? Can I check it off? Oh, I interrupt myself sometimes too. Later, two days later, I left the keys in the wrong car. I got over there around again. So interruptions aren't always outside. Sometimes I interrupt myself. You know, I think culturally, we've been trained. I've been trained that in deferring to others, especially those in authority, we honor them. And I think that's generally true. We've been trained not to interrupt our parents, not to interrupt pastors and teachers and police and others in authority. 
we realize or we think that they've got more important things to do. Presumably they do. I know we try to train our children that way. As young children, not to interrupt us, especially not on the phone. Uh, don't interrupt us unless it's something that's important. And by the way, it's important to me, not necessarily to you. That's kind of how we work that. But here we see Bartimaeus clearly interrupting everybody's plans. He must have missed the lectures that his parents gave him. He obviously hadn't learned the social graces of the day. Strangers, in fact, it says many, I love that, many strangers felt it necessary to correct him, to rebuke him, to tell him to pipe down, fellow, be quiet. How about just shutting up? They found his behavior obnoxious, embarrassing, and clearly inappropriate. But Bartimaeus has something to say to Jesus and something to show to us. In Luke's description of the same event, Luke says, those who led the way were the ones who tried to silence Bartimaeus. Those in front considered persons like Bartimaeus marginal to society and outside the interest of Jesus. Bartimaeus was in the way of the trendsetters, the first and the foremost in the crowd. The trendsetters saw themselves important. Bartimaeus, not so. Which should remind us of a message we had in Mark 9 earlier. Jesus said this, Whoever receives one such child, or as Darren described it, one such insignificant one, when whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and he who receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. Bartimaeus, one of the least for sure, a little one in worldly significance, a person that wasn't needed, presumably, was in the way. Yes, Jesus had proclaimed blessings on receiving one such person in Jesus' name, but no one including all of his disciples, none of them either, saw Bartimaeus as worthy. As Carolyn shared in a special time to us a few weeks ago, before she began her job at the library, she said, I just didn't see those who were insignificant in our, in our world. I just kind of overlooked those. But in the library, they come in and they take a place where it's cool or it's warm. And she's seeing them now. It's so easy to unconsciously ignore so many people in our society. But Bartimaeus was not intimidated by those about him. He apparently felt no embarrassing in calling out for crying out, for crying out loud, we might say. Or if he did, he just, it was not something that was going to interrupt his, this opportunity to talk to Jesus. He didn't really care who was trying to silence him. He didn't listen to those leading the way. Those who tried to assign him a role of silence or invisibility before God, he refused to accept this role and position. John Pyther's got a kind of pithy statement about this. This was a time for desperation for Bartimaeus. This was a time for prevailing. This was a time for wholly demanding. If the son of David wasn't hearing shouts, then Bartimaeus was going to shout louder. He was going to be heard. Son of David... Have mercy on me. It may have been a little hard on Bartimaeus. Maybe he did know the social graces of the day. Maybe he knew he was interrupting the Savior of the world. Maybe he knew he was loud and obnoxious. 
Maybe he was embarrassed. Maybe he knew his behavior was clearly inappropriate. But what is clear is he was determined to see Jesus, and nothing was going to deter him from that. He was not to be denied when he heard Jesus was present. He believed that seeing Jesus was more important than whatever damage might happen to his reputation. I think he saw this as his one shot. You know, he stands in stark contrast to another fellow we heard about in Mark not too long ago, the rich young ruler. Barnabas, this poor, probably dirty beggar, was willing to give up all he had to reach Jesus. You could say it was a lot easier for Barnabas, but he didn't have much to give up. But doesn't that give us some insight into the words of Jesus earlier in this same chapter when he said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know, we see in Barnabas a willingness to give up even his most meager reputation, as well as his cloak, the only real possession he owned, to reach Jesus, believing that Jesus would hear and would respond compassionately. There is certainly much to be said for Barnabas, this blind beggar. First, we don't know much about his history, but apparently he was faithfully doing the only job that was really available for him, for a blind person that, in that economy. In that society, the only real occupation was to request alms for one who couldn't see. But there's no evidence of grumpiness or bitterness or depression. Instead, we see a bit of a curious, bold man. He was inquisitive of what was going on. He hears the sound of a group of people coming by and interrupts somebody and ask what's happening. He's interested in the engaged. He inquires, and then boldly he acts in calling out. What makes Barnabas such a hero to me is his bold faith, a faith that believed Jesus would respond to this need, the needs of a socially lower caste, unworthy one. I think from his trade, in, from his trade I call trade, of begging, of getting funds, getting alms from others, he must have known how to ask. And without asking or requesting or even pleading, he probably wouldn't survive as a blind guy. I think his dependence on others turned out to be a blessing to him. He was dependent and he knew he was dependent on others. And he wasn't above asking for help. He was inquisitive and astute. In Luke's account, we see him asking about what was happening, what was going on. More subtly, we see a man who must have had some knowledge of the scriptures. You know, as a blind man, he couldn't certainly have read the word. But we don't know. Maybe he hadn't been born blind. This happened later in life, and he learned it before. But we see in Barnabas a clear and accurate understanding of the prophecies in his immediate response to to the news that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Bart begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David! Have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, like all good Jews, would have known the promise made to King David that in his uh, family and in his kingdom and his throne that there would always be someone to rule, that his throne would endure forever. The son, word son of David is a messianic title. It's why the Pharisees and the rulers were so upset with Jesus a week later, or someday, a few days later, when he was on Palm Sunday, and the people 
put their robes down. They put the palm leaves down. They said, Hosanna to the, to the son of David. The Jewish leaders thought that was blasphemy to call Jesus the son of David, to call him the king who comes in the name of the Lord because in doing so, they were declaring Jesus as the Messiah. And the leaders of the Jews thought that was clear blasphemy. But I think Barnabas understood that Davidic covenant and his cry was a statement of faith that Jesus was much more than just Jesus of Nazareth, a person from Nazareth, but Jesus was the son of David whom God had promised through the prophets centuries before. But I think this blind man was probably also very aware of another messianic prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah prophesies, Behold, your God will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. For many Jews, giving sight to the blind was the signature miracle of the Messiah. No Old Testament prophet had had these miracles. God promised that in the Messianic kingdom, there'd be healing of the blind. In fact, even Jesus himself, when he responded to John the Baptist's representatives, and what's going on, Jesus? He said, go report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. Jesus was affirming that, yes, he was that expected one. John, hold the faith. Scriptures about the blind receiving sight from the coming Messiah would surely have been important, would surely have been known to, to Bartimaeus. And his actions suggest he knew who Jesus really was. Although physically completely blind, spiritually he had acute sight. Bartimaeus must have believed Jesus was a man of compassion and a giver of mercy because he asked for mercy. He asked first for mercy, for kindness from the Messiah. He knew he had no rights to bring before the son of David. He had nothing certainly to pay for his salvation, for his forgiveness, or even his healing. But he trusted Jesus would respond differently than the crowd, the crowd who had just ignored him. Jesus would respond compassionately and generously. He believed Jesus was different than everybody else. And merciful. He was right. Jesus, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus is the kind and merciful one. He gives forgiveness that is not earned, healing that cannot be bought. To Jesus, Bartimaeus was the son of Timaeus. He was the prized one, the one that Jesus loved would soon die for. I've come to a personal conclusion, and you don't have to accept this one, but I'm going to, you'll have to hear it as you leave. <clears throat> I've come to the conclusion that Barnabas was expecting Jesus. I suggest this parable makes, or this passage makes much more sense if we conclude that Barnabas had been looking for Jesus. As a blind man, he certainly had more spiritual insight than anybody else there, including all the disciples. Sitting by the road, engaging folks in conversations to ask for money, he must have heard about the popular Jesus. I suspect he had conversations with others about the prophecies of the Messiah, especially those prophecies about healing blindness. And then when we, he heard about Jesus, the healer of the blind, I think Barnabas personally concluded that this Jesus was the Messiah. This son of David was the Messiah. 
And if I had been Bartimaeus and I had faith to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, I would have been praying that God would, in his great grace, send Jesus my way. I would have been awaiting the coming of my Messiah. In fact, I would be expecting the Son of David. I would have been practicing a season of Advent, awaiting the coming of the healer of my heart and my eyes. I would have believed that Jesus was the answer to my prayer. And now, here was Jesus. Jesus had finally come. The one Bartimaeus had been long awaiting and I think praying for. If that's the case, Bartimaeus' behavior is not unusual, not unexpected. How could he let his Messiah go by? If you believe, if he believed he was the son of David, the healer of his physical blindness, the savior of his soul, how could he let him pass? If Bartimaeus let Jesus go by, he would have lost his chance. What he'd been praying for, he'd have lost his chance to receive his sight. He would remain darkened in his eyes. So Bartimaeus did not let him go by. There was no stain on his reputation that would stop him from crying out. There was no lecture by people of decorum and propriety and standing that would stop him. There was nothing that would stop him. If Jesus didn't immediately hear him, he would just crank up the decibels and cry out all the more. There's something humbling about crying out to God. Mark uses the word cry. Matthew has a parable, parallel description, and the verb there used is scream, often used for lunatics and people that were possessed. You know, I do believe God listens to private prayers, even silent prayers, so don't get me wrong. But there's something about crying out to God out loud, unimpeded, unembarrassed, that'd be a word, that demonstrates, well, it doesn't demonstrate, it is the urgency of our heart. And it demonstrates that. There's a desperation to which the Savior is especially attuned to. In Psalms, we hear David frequently crying out to God. If you read the Psalms, it's all over the place, but here's a few. In my distress, I called out to the Lord and cried to my God for help, and he heard my voice and my cry. Another, hear my cry, O Lord, attend to my prayer. Another, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Don't be silent in my tears. David, in his distresses, in his tears, in his fears, cries desperately out to God for help, urgently for help. This is the urgency, the desperation that Barnabas displayed, what Piper calls holy demanding. We need to be careful with that, but in this case, it works. This is the urgency and desperation that our Savior especially responds to. And yes, Jesus did stop. He responded to Bartimaeus' continuing distressing cries. But more importantly, Jesus then commands those around him, call him. You know, this reminds me of when the disciples were keeping the mothers and the babies and the little kids from Jesus. They were trying to protect Jesus or something. Jesus commands that these little ones be permitted to come. He's calling them. Jesus tires of proprieties and social structures that get in the way of people coming to him. The son of David came for the needy, the immature, the dependent, the humble. 
He came to save and seek the lost. It's only when we recognize our need for him that we have a need for a savior. Then he becomes our savior. Bartimaeus certainly knew he had a need for Jesus. He immediately throws off his cloak, the most valuable thing he owned. In fact, the only thing he owned, apparently. It was his blanket at night. It's probably what he scooped up the alms in when they tossed the alms to him. He throws it up. He springs up. And I first thought he must have run, but maybe as a blind man you don't run, but he comes to Jesus. For those of you following the points, we've come through the first two. We see that Jesus is never too busy or preoccupied to be interrupted by our needs. We've also seen that Jesus responds to the persistent cries of his people. And we can trust him to respond to us when we boldly cry out without fear of our reputation, without embarrassment. But let's look to the next point. That leads us really to the second part of the story. Jesus cares and does heal and gives us health and salvation. Jesus speaks directly to Bartimaeus. Interestingly, Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, asks Bartimaeus this question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, Darren got us warm with this question last week with James and John. Very same question. James and John said, we want to be first in the kingdom. One right here and one right there and you in the middle. We'd be great. We'd be right and left-hand man and we'll, the three of us can make this happen. This was not Bartimaeus. was not asking for a claim. He was asking for a need. I need to see, Lord. I want to see a simple request. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to ask God, give us our daily bread. I think that's certainly food. That's provision. But I think that includes health. I think it includes uh, shelter. It's those primary needs we have. And Bartimaeus had a physical need that was limiting him dramatically. He had a need for sight. Now, why did Jesus ask him that? Do you think Jesus didn't know that? Do you think anybody in that crowd didn't know what Bartimaeus was going to say? I think we all would have assumed he was going to say that. But Jesus wants us to articulate our needs, articulate our dependence upon him. He wants us to know we need him. Bartimaeus had already asked Jesus for mercy and kindness. But this current request was the particular request Bartimaeus had. His answer, Rabbi, let me receive my sight, recover my sight. First note, the title Bartimaeus gives. Rabbi, or other places would call it Rabboni, which means high rabbi or senior rabbi. Bartimaeus, believing Jesus was the Messiah, here notes his understanding that Jesus was more than just a rabbi. He showed utmost respect to the son of David and the Messiah. Salvation doesn't come just to those who know Jesus is, who Jesus is. James says even the demons knew that. But salvation and healing are for those who come when the master calls and cry out to him for light and for salvation. VSV uh, translation here says the word recover. Other translations Use that, describe that same verb as restore or regain. It says to me probably that Bartimaeus must have had sight before. 
it's going to be restored or recovered or regained. He probably had it before, but lost it. In fact, in these early years, the most common cause of blindness was infections. I suspect blindness developed in one's lifetime is even more distressful than blindness from birth. In a similar manner, the many of us, maybe all of us who experience many blessings of life, of good health, of loving relationships, of sound finances, and then who've lost them, are more aware of that loss than ever. For some reason, I tend to think I only move forward. Uh, situations should stay constantly good or get better. Uh, we don't expect our health to fail, certainly not in our youth or our middle age. We think our relationship should improve over time. I got more time spent. It should be better. Why do I get in fusses? In reality, though, we have no such guarantees. And sin, sin and its consequences is still strong in the world and often in their own lives. Even, under, even as Christians under God's sovereign rule, things do go south. Often exacerbated by our poor decisions and priorities. We suffer disillusionments in marriages. Relationships rise and fall. Children get sick and make bad decisions. Cars and furnaces break down. Especially if we don't maintain them. We have bike accidents and break necks. Recessions and jobs losses occur in spite of our best efforts and hard work. And pandemics come and disrupt everything. You know, Jesus knows about all of it. It's not a surprise. He allows it all, and the best part is he orchestrates it all, all these unhappy events, for the good of his own and for the growth of his own. Jesus comes and asks us, what do you want me to do? He doesn't ask this because he's some butler in the sky to, be, to deliver, but he wants us to articulate our needs to him, to verbalize our dependence upon him, and to recognize that we can't do it by ourselves. We grow in faith and in maturity in Christ when we recognize him daily as Lord, and we share our needs with him daily, when we realize that without him, what we do is in vain. When we acknowledge and testify of his mercy and forgiveness and grace toward us, he responds and heals. We see that in Barimaeus and spades. You know, I want to be more like this Barimaeus, to cry out for, to God for that which I need, that which I've lost, that which is failing. David asked God to restore the joy of his salvation. Oh, we should do so likewise. We can humbly ask God to restore the joy of our marriages the harmony in our homes, the fellowship with our friends, the unity within our church. The evil one and his cohorts are loose and creating havoc in our society and in our lives. We should be crying out in desperation for God to arise, to save and purify his people, to scatter his enemies. I have no idea how long Bartimaeus had been blind. I don't know how long he may have been praying for God to heal his blindness. It could have been for decades. He may have been asking for healing long before he heard the name Jesus. Like the widow in Jesus' parable with the bad judge, Bartimaeus may have been 
constantly imploring God to do something for a long, long time. But note, Bartimaeus was ready when the opportunity arose. He knew who Jesus was. He knew Jesus could heal. And he had faith that he would do so. And he didn't let his reputation or the cultural norms of others stop him from crying out desperately to Jesus. And when he heard Jesus' call to him, he left all he had and came to Jesus. And Jesus healed. Jesus again showed his power and compassion. You know, it's easy to focus on Bartimaeus, but he's not the star of the show. The star is Jesus. We see him in the midst of preparing for his death and the salvation of all mankind. A a terrible, scary thing with universal impact. He stops and listens to a single, poor, dirty beggar. In compassion, he says, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, Bartimaeus regained his sight, and note, he began following Jesus. What do we learn from G- about Jesus in this? Well, Jesus cares for the individual. There's billions of people on this earth, but he cares for me, and he cares for you, no matter what our social position We know he cares because he, the creator of the universe, stops and listens. I was a parent. I was not good at that. When the kids were calling, stopping, listening, he interrupted my agenda. But Jesus stops and listens. More importantly, we see that when we persistently cry out to him in desperation, he hears, and I think even more important, he commands the power that would deny our fellowship and communion with him to end their oppression. We see that Jesus is never too busy or distracted to hear us and speak with us. Indeed, he calls us. What a blessing. Secondly, we see that Jesus has power over our ailments and the ability to meet our needs and to save us. Clearly, nothing is too difficult for him. When he speaks, we are healed. Thirdly, we see again that he wants us to articulate our needs, not for his sake, but for our sakes. And lastly, we see he delivers health and salvation. Jesus wants more than just our physical health. He wants us to know him and to experience his forgiveness and trust him in the hard and easy times. Bartimaeus asked for mercy and sight. He received forgiveness, spiritual life, and physical sight. But before we leave the story, three more, I hope, short thoughts. Note, Bartimaeus expressed his gratitude by immediately following Jesus. There are other examples of people get healed, and they're often gone, but not Bartimaeus. He followed Jesus, most likely following him to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was going. And through the, through good, uh, I'm sorry, through uh, his passion, death, and resurrection. There's a tradition out there that's still celebrated by some that Bartimaeus appeared at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin and spoke well of Jesus. Don't know if that's true, but it seems consistent. You know, natural response to Jesus' forgiveness, healing, and grace is communion with him, a desire to be in his presence. I think that's why Bartimaeus followed Jesus. 
He didn't know what this word this was leading, but he wanted to be with the one who had saved him. He was healed and following Jesus, following Jesus through the glory of Palm Sunday and the desperation of the cross to the resurrection of Easter. In all likelihood, Bartimaeus had no idea what was going to happen, had no idea about the sufferings of Christ at this point in time, but he would learn the truth that the glory of the resurrection comes through the suffering of the cross. Like Bartimaeus, God's waiting to know, God's wanting us to know more than a physical healing and enter, entry into salvation. He wants us to experience a deepening faith, understanding of his purposes and love. And I think that place only comes through testing and sufferings. Second thought. We see that our faith in Jesus and gratitude to Jesus can impact the world and bring glory to God. Luke points out in his description of the same event that the people recognized the wonder of this incident and, quote, all gave God glory. Not just some. All who were there gave God glory. What a remarkable thing. When God saves and heals and we respond by glorifying and praising God and following our Savior, our world, the people in our circle of influence, take note and bring glory to God. When our lives reflect God's miracles, when we testify of His great grace and healing, when we're wholeheartedly pursuing after Him, people notice and God gets glory. We can affect those around us in such a way as to bring God glory. A last thought. Who are you and I most like in this passage? Are we like the crowd that enjoys walking with Jesus of Nazareth? Are we like the ones who like propriety? I guess I kind of do. Who recognize ranks and perks that belong to that? Are we like the ones who like to want to be with Jesus but don't want to go out on a limb for Jesus? For after all, he might not heal. He might not restore he might not really care about what's going on in my life. Or to what extent are we like those who don't want to bother with those in poverty? Those without power, those in pain. Do we easily look past those in lower social economic status than we? Or worse, to what extent do we limit their opportunities to come to Jesus? Or are we more like Bartimaeus? The one who examined the claims of Jesus and believed he was the son of David, the Messiah, the long-expected one and Lord. Are we willing to cry out urgently to Jesus, no matter the price to our reputation or pride? Are we ever at risk of being told we're too fanatic in our faith? Have we been told to temper ourselves because we're going over the edge? That we don't need to take Jesus this seriously. Do we have a desperate need that we continually cry out to God for, for mercy and for healing? Believing that Jesus really does care and he will meet that need? To what extent are we willing to risk our faith on Jesus? And how much do we long to stay in his presence? And have we counted the cost that the ones who've decided to follow Jesus from Jericho to the glory of Palm Sunday, 
through the suffering of Jesus and the passion and finally to his resurrection. Jesus did come. Bartimaeus was ready. Bartimaeus was prepared. Jesus called. Bartimaeus joyously responds. Like Bartimaeus, without Jesus, we are in total darkness. But thankfully, Jesus came and gave sight to Bartimaeus. The light of Jesus, the light of Christ came into the world, a world comprehended by darkness. And Jesus dispels darkness. I think Isaiah sums it up well. In chapter 6, he says, Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Let's pray. Father, I hear these words of Isaiah echoing in my mind, in my spirit. Oh Lord, we have darkness in this world. There is deep darkness. The clouds are darkening more. And yet you promise that you will come. And Lord, we know that Jesus did come. Oh Lord, continue to come into our hearts. May we see your light. Lord, we need light in the dark world. Lord, I pray light for our church. I pray light for, light for our Sunday school and children's ministry. I pray light in the sanctuary. Lord, I pray light in our families. We need the light of Christ. We thank you for his light. Thank you for your glory, Jesus. We thank you are the same today as you were with Bartimaeus 2,000 years ago. We give you praise. Amen.